This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Ewa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and it is our great good fortune to have Constance Wu with us today. She's now an author, and Making a Scene is just out, and it is a very big book. You cover a lot of ground, Constance. So can I just ask you, can we start with the title of this book? Yeah. It's a book of essays, right? And each essay has its own title. And it's interesting how as I was writing each essay, when the theme and central heart of each essay really clicked in was also the exact moment where I was like, oh, that's the title. And it's funny, there's one essay in it called Making a Scene. And I remember as I was writing it, I was like, that's not only the title of this chapter, that's the title of this book. It was so clear to me. And the more I thought about it, it was clear to me in ways that I wasn't smart enough to know even at the time. The idea of what it means when a woman makes a scene, what it means to make a scene in a play, and how that's such a integral part of my formation as a person. What it means to make a scene as a young woman, Asian woman in the South. What it means to make a scene on social media. There are many versions of that that become a recurring theme in my life. And it's almost like my book was smarter than me in terms of knowing what the title was before I even knew why it was that title. And I want to start because, as you mentioned a second ago, you grew up in Richmond, Virginia. Mm -hmm. Or in the suburbs of Richmond, Virginia, yeah. That's the South. You're a Southern Belle. I don't know if Belle is the right word. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, but here's the thing. You're part of a culture where women don't make a scene. Yeah, where women are taught not to make scenes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's also a version of that in Asian American culture, to be honest. There is a version of that in every culture that has patriarchal roots or that seeks to suppress women. And the flip side of that, that I try to talk about in my book, is there are some people for whom making a scene is not their natural, intuitive self. Right. Like my little sister, for example, she's an introvert, naturally so. To say that she needs to make a scene and be this fierce activist in order to be a person of substance, that is extremely reductive and judgmental. And I think sometimes with our like big mobs of opinion on social media, we've started to say like that somebody who is has a different level of or a form of activism and voice than Mm -hmm. the one that we think is the acceptable one. We tend to place judgment on that. So I was trying to be very careful in my book to say that it's okay if you don't want to make a scene and if that's Mm -hmm. naturally uncomfortable to you, the way it's naturally uncomfortable to my little sister who is an introvert. But if it's something that is just a part of your essential being, I mean, like Mm -hmm. the first time I went to an audition and I had to do this really dramatic crying monologue, for me, that was a release and it was a relief. It wasn't Mm -hmm. something that was difficult, which was my first clue that that is my essential self. So to have to repress that is just as dangerous as trying to force somebody who is not naturally that way to Mm -hmm. be a different way than they are. The key is to find out what your authentic voice is and stay true to that without judging other people. And the thing is too, you really do go through your journey up until this point in your life. You start with, well, I was a kid who didn't actually want to stand out. I wanted to blend in like a lot of kids do. And then you found community theater, which I didn't realize you'd been acting essentially since you were a kid. Yeah, I mean, not acting for pay. (laughs) Right. 
but yeah, doing, I've been doing theater. I was always in a play after mm-hmm. that first audition for the play, a little princess based mm-hmm. on the book by Francis Hodgson Burnett. I was always in a play, always in rehearsals. And if I wasn't in a play, I was counting the hours till I could be in a play because it was the first time I felt a sense of belonging, a sense of community. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's called community theater for a mm-hmm. reason. A real sense of home. I think any person of color growing up in the 90s and late late 80s in the South, it can be hard to find a place where you feel so at home with who you are. Theater is where all like the weird people go. So it's like you were never judged for being different. People would leaned into that. That's why growing up, that's where like, you know, and it was a very different time back when I was growing up, but like being gay was not as acceptable. But in community theater, like that's the first time I met people who were allowed to be openly gay and it wasn't a problem. And that's where they all found each other. It was just a wonderful community. One of the things I appreciate, too, about how you describe that community theater experience for yourself, too, is that you realized you could say someone else's words. And even though they were the playwright's words, there was freedom that you could have big emotions and that you could have a big personality and you could do all of these things. And it wasn't a problem. Yes, you weren't because, you know, girls were supposed to be small and quiet where I'm from. You weren't supposed to make scenes. But when you're doing a play, you're not scolded for making scenes. You're actually often applauded for it. It's encouraged because it's not you. So, I mean, it is you in a way because every character is a part of your heart. But you sort of have that wonderful excuse. This is not me, but this is how I'm getting out a part of me. One of the things I was slightly surprised by is how honest you are in this book. You really are not hiding anything in these essays. And one of the themes that runs through each piece is the fact that you have really big emotions. And in some cases, your big emotions have not always helped you. So how did you get to a place for you as Constance, as a person, where you could be this public about your life? I mean, you're talking about stuff that you have not previously discussed yeah. in this book. That's a lot. I mean, you said a second ago, you know, my big emotions have not always helped me. I actually think in a strange way, it's not that they haven't helped me. It's that when I repress them for so long and they accumulate into something where the reaction is larger than this, the trigger merits It seems out of character. People don't have context for it. But I think if I was like the community theater kid I was all along, and if I had been expressive of these things so that they didn't accumulate, I think that would have helped me in many ways that, you know, could be embarrassing. The things that mean the most to us are when we say, hey, I'm embarrassed of this, but this is what's going on. And I don't know what to do rather than acting like what to do and like you're in control of it all and you took care of it. Because, you know, like I talk in my essay about, you know, some harassment I faced on a TV show that I was on. And I actually, that was the last essay I wrote. I didn't even want to put it in the book. I only wrote it because my editor was like, why don't you write about this? And I was like, I kept saying no. And then finally I was like, all right, I'm going to write about it just as an exercise for myself to understand it. And then ultimately I was like, I guess, even though I don't want to talk about this, I think it's important to include. I handled it, I, or I quote unquote handled it. And I felt proud of myself. And it's like, if I could swallow that and, and handle it, 
and do it. And I, and I know people who have had way worse situations than I have. So how would I sound if I'm like, quote unquote, complaining about it? You know, it, it opens you up to criticism because there's a spectrum of, you know, what people think is counts as abuse and what people think doesn't. So I think the lesson I'm learning is that repression doesn't serve me in the way that I think it does or that I used to think it did. Yeah, but repression also is something that you would have been taught. I mean, just socially, just in terms of, I mean, you grew up in the South, in the American South. There are certain behavioral codes. I mean, certainly Asian America also has some behavioral codes as well, but repression actually would have been something that you were taught. Yeah, and not just in the South. There's a form of it when I lived in New York City for many years. Even something as simple as I remember like being a waitress and somebody saying something that was genuinely exciting and me seeming like, oh my God, that's so awesome. And then one of my male counterparts going like, oh my God, you're so awesome. They're making fun a little bit. And I would laugh at them of my voice. But when I said that, my excitement was genuine. And so my pitch raised, but just a little tiny microaggression like that made me feel like, oh, wait, it's not cool to show that kind of excitement. So there are forms of it in every kind of culture. So I definitely feel like I learned it growing up in the South. And I think it, I learned it in a different way, trying to be a kind of a cool New Yorker when I was in my 20s. Okay. But I want to talk about this story that I quite love from you in college. You're getting your bachelor's in fine arts at SUNY Purchase, which is a great acting program. Yeah. The story about the orange. I mean, mm. I'm not sure that everyone knows, because I've certainly never studied acting, so I found all of the insight that you were delivering on that background piece really kind of interesting and fascinating. But yeah. the orange story, you made yourself cry with an orange. <laughs> no, the orange made me cry. I okay. didn't make myself cry. Yeah. <laughs> Can we talk about this story, please? Of course. I don't consider myself a method actor, but I definitely studied it as part of my conservatory course of being a classically trained actor. One of the foundations of method acting is something called sense memory, where you sort of like go through the senses of an event, you know, touch, sound, smell, taste, sight, rather than the events of it and the feelings that are attached. And as a very, very fundamental building block of this method, you do an exercise called exploring an orange, where you explore the fruit, an orange, with all your five senses for like two hours of just you in a quiet room doing nothing but looking, smelling, tasting, feeling, hearing an orange. And it sounds really quite boring. And I think that's kind of the point, is that we take these common everyday objects and we take time for them. And I think taking time for that orange made me think about what happens when we take time for anything in our lives and how connected and alive we can become to this earth if we only just stopped and took the time for things. When I was exploring that orange, I started to think about how it got to me about the tree it came from, about the roots in the ground and the people who have stepped on that ground, about how it was when it was first a sapling. All these things that we take for granted because we could get them in an air-conditioned grocery store aisle. But when you think about everything that goes into it, it's almost a friggin' miracle. And it makes me cry even like thinking about it 
now. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because I'm an actor, but I found this process very helpful for my writing as well. And when I wrote the, about the events of an emotion, it often started to become kind of some kind of like victim blame kind of thing. But if I focus just on the sensory elements surrounding the event rather than the emotions, the emotions just naturally happened, right? And that's a thing that I think I read somewhere Hemingway said something like, when you're writing about fishing, write about the way the sun glinted on the fishing wire when it tightened. Write about the way that it like shook and the temperature in the air, and then the emotion will come naturally. And I found that doing that was really key in writing my stories as well. I to get too mired in ego and focus on the sensory experience of everything. It improved the writing and it, it was kind of revelatory and almost healing for me in a new way. So sense memory, I'm not a method actor, but that is an exercise that I found very fruit, fruitful, <laughs> fruitful <laughs> to my experience. And I continue to find very fruitful. What a great word. You also had to fight though to get the roles that were not just ingenue roles, even in college. And you're acting with your peer group. So it's not like someone in class is 40 and can suddenly just take a role because they're that much older than you are. But already you're looking at, you know, a little bit of foreshadowing for what's going to happen in Hollywood where you're saying, hey, wait a minute, I can do Cassandra. I can do Lady Macbeth. I don't have to be the cute girl in the corner. And that's not necessarily something I was expecting to hear when you're in conservatory as an undergrad. Yeah. And, you know, I talked about this in the book that my conservatory teachers did have a point in that, yes, I wanted to play Lady M and they wanted me to play Laura from The Glass Menagerie. And in that sense, I do think that they thought that I was trying to be bigger than I was and that I didn't understand the value and the courage it takes to play somebody like Laura. And it does. It truly does. Laura is an extraordinary part. So I don't think that my teachers were wrong in that. And also in terms of my age, they were probably right. I don't think I had the depth of experience. I, you know, I like was a sheltered suburban girl when I got to college. But it is the feeling I've come across many times in my life of feeling underestimated and helpless. Yes, that happened for me in college, I think because I was small and slender and youthful looking that, you know, I would play Laura in the Glass Menagerie or Nina and the Seagull, Juliet, Romeo, Juliet, all great parts. But I guess I just wanted something with more teeth, with more spine. And when I was able to audition for the role of Cassandra in the Orsaya, I felt like I was able to channel all of that in a way that I actually got it, which was like a huge deal for me back then. Wait, have you had a chance yet to play Masha? And three sisters. No, but I would love to play Masha. It's like totally one of my dream roles. But I feel like if I were cast in the seagull today, I would be like Natasha. <laughs> but what, what we did do three sisters when mm-hmm. I was okay. in college in scene study class. And of course, I was cast as Irina. Great part. But it was the more ingenue-ish of the parts. Whereas Masha's like the part, you know. And part of why I want to get you talking about the theater is I'm not sure everyone knows that you have this deep theater background, and it took you more than a minute to get established in Los Angeles, which happens for a lot of actors. You left New York. So it takes you eight years. You're waitressing. You're figuring out what's next. You get a fantastic role in 2015. But also being a theater actor doesn't necessarily teach you all of the other stuff that you now suddenly have to learn. 
in 2015. You're working a lot of hours. The scrutiny changes. You are doing a lot of promotion. It's not the same. Even for very successful theater actors here in New York, it's a different kind of profile. Yeah, very much so. And I, I think, you know, I was fortunate that I had this big break with Fresh Off the Boat and that it was essentially my first TV gig ever. But it's interesting because I think most people, their first big TV gig comes after many smaller TV gigs. So in that sense, they're sort of eased into the environment a little bit and they start to make friends with other people who have been through it. And so they have a bit of a community of guidance. I had never done anything. I had Fresh Off the Boat was actually my first, not only my first pilot, it was my first ever screen test. So I was thrown into this as a 30-year-old adult. And because of that, there was the expectation, because I was, you know, obviously an adult, that I had done little things like, you know, guest stars on TV shows before. There was the expectation that I knew that what I was doing, and it was embarrassing to admit that I didn't, that I was so new to this when like even my child counterparts seemed to know more than me. It was embarrassing. So I think I swallowed a lot and kept a lot in because A, I was scared of losing my job. And B, I was embarrassed that I didn't know things. And I was unsure what was a standard practice and what was intimidation or harassment. I didn't know because I had no context for it. Well, not only did you not have that context, though, you're thrown into this sort of pressure of representation. I mean, All American oh, yeah. Girl aired in what, mid 90s, so 94-ish? 90s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it had been 20 years since we'd seen any kind of, there had been characters as parts of ensembles, certainly. I mean, thank you, Sandra O. Oh. But at the same time, you guys really did change the landscape with that show, but there are expectations that come with that kind of situation. And it got uncomfortable. Yeah, hundred percent. It And it was, I'll admit, the conversation on the representation was one I wasn't familiar with. Not because I didn't care, but, but because when you're focused on paying rent and having a meal, being able to feed yourself, being able to talk about and think about things like representation, it's sort of like not on the forefront because you can't even make your rent. You don't even know where your next meal is coming from sometimes. So I was sort of stumbling along with everybody else and trying to learn as much as I could. Because to me, when I auditioned, it was like any audition, just because I treated all my auditions the same. It's like, oh my God, I have to like pay my credit card debt off. That's all I'm thinking about in the moment. Survival, survival, survival. I was thrust into this conversation for which I'm very grateful to have learned so much from, but I was not prepared for it. I didn't know much about it. Like anybody who tries something new, I stumbled along the way, but I also got back up. I think it's important to sort of note that people can change, (laughs) that people can learn. It feels like there are some folks out in the world who are just kind of like, well, it's either this or it's that. And there is literally no in between. There is no evolution. And I think a lot of us are learning. I mean, certainly I've seen language change rapidly in the last 10 years in a way that it couldn't have prior to this moment in time. Like if I look back at things in sort of the late 90s, early aughts, I mean, one, we didn't have cell phones. Two, the cell phones we had, like we were not carrying around supercomputers in our pockets. No, we had pagers at one point. I, oh. We used pay phones. I mean, like, do you remember collect calls? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I had a like phone say card. your name and you say pick me up. Like <laughs> collect call. No, yeah. it's totally true. But here's the thing: through all of this, through all of this, learning how to have conversations about representation and and mm-hmm. making mistakes, 
you know, whatever form they took. You also had to learn how to say no, though. And this is kind of important. And this is not always a conversation that everyone really is in a place to have, but you really had to learn how to say no. And no is a complete sentence. It really is. Like, no thank you is great, but no is a complete sentence. And the circumstances were rough, but in the end, it really was something you needed to learn and you learned it when you learned it. I learned it when I learned it, but it did not come without its consequences. Saying no to a producer's sexual advances on Fresh Off the Boat, that was a no-brainer. Of course, I wasn't going to, you know, have sex with him. But I had to turn it into a joke Mm -hmm. because otherwise I'm like a frigid bitch or I'm like, I don't even want you anyway. You think you're all that. Mm -hmm. It's like you have to engage in such like, mental gymnastics in order to say no, but also like preserve somebody's wounded ego, the recipient's wounded ego, which it seems slightly unfair that like, I feel like women have to do this more than men. You know, I think my my male counterpart on the show, Randall Park, who I love, I don't think he ever had to deal with unwanted sexual advances from the producer. And thank God, you know, but um, it just think, made me think like, wow, all the energy that I spent trying to turn something into a joke and make a no less threatening could have been energy spent in a more productive, creative way, <laughs> like like guys get to do all the time. And I'm like, hmm, that's interesting. But I had to do that. Even the, the Asian guy who was my agent mm-hmm. for a short period of time. And even when he said, hey, guess what? I'm dating a white girl. High five. You're dating a white guy. He was trying Mm. to congratulate me for that. I said no to that high five. I was like, dude, I'm not going to high five you for that. We were walking in a hallway down the halls of like a big agency. And he was trying to establish camaraderie with me. So I wasn't going to turn it into this big thing in a moment when he's just trying to be a bro. But I wasn't going to say yes either. So I just said, no, man, I'm not high-fiving you for that, dude. But you have to mask it a little bit with a laugh so that he can like wink it away. But if I had been like, you know what, dude, that's wrong. I'm really insulted that you said that. He would have been like, whoa, calm down, honey. I was Mm -hmm. just kidding. It's unfortunate that I, for a long time, and, and still now, when I say no, I have to find ways to soften it. Otherwise, you get labeled any number of derogatory things. You know, one of the things that I'm hoping readers see in making a scene too is how all of these pieces, the good and the bad, and there's certainly, there's some fun stuff in here. Yeah. But the good and the bad have made you who you are. And the actor that we know from your work, it's pretty exciting to see you sit with this stuff and say, also the monastery thing, I'm going to come back to that for a second because I was not expecting that at all. But I know, I don't talk about it a lot. (laughs) The idea that you can sit in your own discomfort and your own embarrassment and your own shame, that's really powerful. That's not a conversation we're having in a lot of communities, let alone the Asian American community. That's hard work. That's a lot of lifting. When did you realize you were in a place where you could sit down and really talk about this and really think about this and really give yourself space to experience it again? It's always a struggle. I think going to therapy for over a decade was really helpful. I do think one of my greatest strengths that is certainly not something that I had before, it's something I learned to develop through my Hollywood years, is being okay learning how to sit through discomfort. And I think that's how it is in my writing. 
you know, and even in, you know, recently I had a social media statement where I talked about why I had been off social media for quite some time. And I resisted that for so long. I really, I planned never to get back on again. And I didn't want to talk about my suicide attempt. It, to be honest, it was embarrassing to me. I hadn't even told my family about it. It still remains like very scary to me. And, you know, talking about it was the, the, the fresh off the boat essay in the book. I didn't want to write that. That was the last essay I wrote. But I think how it might help somebody who was in the situation I was in so many years ago, I guess matters to me a little more than than I am scared of it. So when I weigh that, when I look at how scared I am versus how scared that girl was, that she literally was like trying to end her life. And if there's any way that like me facing that fear and talking about it might help somebody else, I think knowing that and understanding that helps me face the fear and helps me sit in the discomfort a little bit better. But it always is painful. It always will be painful. Mm-hmm. You can't go through without pain. Does the way it helps somebody outweigh how much you're scared of it? Um, and I wasn't in a place to do this three years ago. You know, I was still very tender. As you can tell now, it's still very tender for me now. But I was in therapy every day for a long time. I had to be. I was like under observation. And getting away from social media helped too for three mm-hmm. years. But yeah, it's something that's a, it's a constant uh, dialogue I have with myself, with the people who I love and who love me with the people who I trust trying to figure out what is the thing that is most meaningful to me and to the world and what helps the most. Can I ask about literary influences for a second? You've always been a reader. Yeah, yeah I have. You've always, always been a reader. I mean, <laughs> cricket in Times Square. <laughs> it was nice to see that. Mention. Oh, I love the liverwurst. Oh my God. Love that. All of it, all of it. And obviously being a reader helps you connect with other people's stories deeply. So this is something you've been doing for forever. Sylvia Plath and Jack Kerouac. You mentioned Hemingway. Thoreau comes up too as well. And in other interviews, you have talked about Jeffrey Eugenides and Marilyn Robinson and Viet Thanh Nguyen. Oh, that David Foster Wallace essay about linguistics. Authority in American Usage. I love that essay. Fantastic essay, yeah. Who are some of the other readers who helped make you make this book? Well, uh, you know, one book I read recently or within the past two years yeah. is uh, Writers and Lovers by Lily King. Oh, so good. So, so good, good, right? That book, so good. She's oh amazing. Oh my God. She's, She's so amazing. amazing. And after yeah. I read that book, I read I read Father of the Rain, yep. Five Tuesdays yep, yep, in yep. Winter. So good. There was a line she has in Writers and Lovers mm-hmm. where she said, her friend says to her, feelings are physical. And that made me think of sense memory. And that, clicked me into all the essays I've been writing. Some of them I hadn't yeah. figured out yet. Like for every page I wrote, there are about 30 discarded pages, mm-hmm. right? And reading that line, it clicked in and it helped me go back to mm-hmm. all of the other essays I was struggling on and find it using sense memory, using the fact that yeah. feelings are physical. And I'm like, ah, oh, yeah. So she really helped. There are pages of it where I I know I was reading Elena Ferrante. There are certain chapters where I'm like, the rhythm of these three mm-hmm. paragraphs, I know exactly what I was probably reading. Mm-hmm. Like, I was definitely reading Days of Abandonment, like, around this time, because Elena Ferrante's prose has, there are parts of it that have this, like, drive to it, right? Mm-hmm. Have this tempo. And it's like, oftentimes, whatever you're watching or listening to or reading mm-hmm. influences the way you're looking at the world at that time. So mm-hmm. I, I think Elena Ferrante is a big influence. Lily, Lily King is a big influence. Mm-hmm. 
I like hearing that thing about Lily King. There, I she's just the bomb. She really did. You read Five Tuesdays in Winter? I have. I've read all of her stuff. I Euphoria. I think I read in a night. Yeah, it was really amazing. But again, I mean, I can see the connection between your work and hers between the sense memory bridge and everything you're talking about. Because again, people who are in the public eye don't always necessarily put everything out. And you really do leave everything on the field. Pardon the bad sports metaphor, but you (laughs) really leave everything on the field. And were you writing the essays in a linear fashion? I mean, I know you talked about the fresh off the boat one being... So it was kind of as you unlocked pieces of your own brain is what it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when I originally set out to write the book, which was before any of the fresh off the boat stuff, I think Mm -hmm. actually was around the time when Trump was elected. I had originally set out to write something that was kind of like politically like activist. And I would write something in like a frenzy of feeling because we were all feeling so much at Mm -hmm. that time. And then I would read it the next day and I'd be like, oh my God, this is horrible. This is all like ego. This is me trying to show off. And I would just like chuck the whole thing and just feel so despondent about myself as a writer and as a person. But sometimes when I was writing all that stupid crap, sometimes there would be one little sentence in there Mm -hmm. that would be a memory of something. Like my first essay I wrote was about my ex-boyfriend, the one Mm -hmm. in Lucky Bucks, which is the first essay in the book. And I think I had vaguely mentioned something that happened with him in one of my political essays because I was reminded of it. And I was like, wait, this is a story. I haven't thought about this in a while. Let me write about this. And then writing about, I would be like, oh, that's the story. That's the story that I am meant to tell, not mm-hmm. the one that my ego wants to tell, but the mm-hmm. one that mm, that is just the truth of me. And that includes some of the ugly parts. I mean, I wasn't always my best the way we are in any relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, like you're not always your best and sometimes mm-hmm. you're great, but it would be very one sided if it was always, you know, one person is the hero and one person is the villain. One is the antagonizer. One is the victim. It's things are more complex than that. I would hope that anyone who's a reader understands that. I mean, it gets a little boring if there's no drama. If there's no conflict, there's no drama. And if there's no drama, what are we reading? Uh, I don't know. One of my, I don't read my reviews, but one of okay. my sisters does. And she told me, she was like, I read somebody on Goodreads. They said, your writing was good, but she wasn't very likable. My sister was telling me this because she was trying to help me. She was like, you've got to be more likable. And I was like, oh, good. That's the point. If I was trying to be likable, I'd repress a lot. I'd hold back a lot. And I would keep back a lot of the things that make me human and a lot of things that would help people forgive themselves. It's a real thing. I know this is going to come out and people are going to be like, be very critical. They're going to say things like that. But ah, that's just a part of it. You got to sit through the discomfort of that. It's so subjective. (laughs) I mean, it really... It's wildly subjective. I've had conversations with people about novels and we sort of look at each other and go, wait, did we just read the same book? I know. Isn't that interesting? People have always had rather strong reactions to you and your work. And I don't know, doesn't that get tiresome after a while? Or is it just part of the job? Of course, everything gets tiresome. But what's more tiring is not being your authentic self. It's weighing the costs and the, you know, like, yes, this is difficult, but is it more difficult than like what it means to you? Mm -hmm. Um, And I sort of learned that the hard way, repressing a lot or trying to be Miss Perfect has a cost. Mm -hmm. Bad feelings and emotions don't 
just disappear because you will them to. If they are true, they will inevitably come out in other ways. So why not just be who you are from the beginning? And you might win some, you might lose some, but at least you didn't lose yourself. I mean, isn't some of the response to you, though, doesn't it connect to this whole idea of the model minority, which is, you know, an image that I personally find repulsive, but, you know, it's, it's a label that was applied to us from outside of the That's community. And, yeah. and I just sort of feel like some of the crankiness about you comes from the fact that you don't play that. You just don't do it, which thank you for that, by the way. But I mean, <sighs> do we have to? Like, aren't we past this? Aren't we past that Time magazine cover with all of the cute, smiling, tiny faces with the bangs and everything? (laughs) I mean, that's the thing. Uh, Calling it a we. Everybody has their own journey. Mm -hmm. And I think when you see certain things that are said about you and Mm -hmm. labels that are applied to you, if you're secure in yourself and if you've done the work, somebody saying you're not likable doesn't wound you anymore. That would have wounded me when I was 16, 100%. It doesn't wound me so much anymore, but it makes, it's more reflective of the speaker than it is of me. And so I think when you look at it that way, it grows your empathy and your humanity in a way that I have found very wonderful to me. Like even conversations about who I date and, you know, my boyfriend now is Asian But people used to assume I only dated white guys because the one boyfriend that they were aware of was white. Mm -hmm. But even if I did, like, who cares? But I didn't. But anyway, if I wasn't secure in my choice, there would have been a natural reflexive response to be defensive and be self-righteous about it. But because I'm secure in my reasons for who I love and why, and because I know that I date many people across many different races, including Asians, and I know why. I don't need to prove anything, but it does give me an opportunity to say, oh, the person who's criticizing me for something they're not even sure of, what does it say about their pain? And how can I learn about their pain in a way that will help me grow as a more empathetic person rather than turning me into a defensive victim. Then I open up a whole conversation, you know, that I maybe was less aware of about like, you know, emasculation of Asian men and how that must feel. And it doesn't excuse behavior, obviously. Just like I don't excuse my own poor behavior that I sometimes write about in the book. But it makes you understand it and it helps you forgive yourself and others more for it. And by doing that, you actually, ironically, become the gentler person that they wanted you to become all along, but in a way that's more authentic to you. And isn't that the part of art anyway, to connect us all and to make us more human and and show the seams and the picky bits and all of that interiority that we can't necessarily get across? Yeah, I mean, art has different points. I mean, some people Mm -hmm. think it's to be disruptive, but, but even that disruption is a way of trying to force us to look at something that maybe we're not looking at. So yeah, in a way you could say that too, but yeah. I mean, disruption for me is, is the sibling of connection. It's like, well, you can't disrupt. 100%. Right? Like there are people who are just like, let's go in and break stuff. And it's like, well, you have to feel like something's worth saving to break it or break it in order to save it. And even in like, like romantic relationships, often Mm -hmm. the greatest intimacy comes out of the most trying times. It doesn't come out of like the love honeymoon phase where everything's like perfect. Yes, there's wonderful stuff there too. But the really great human stuff is a little more plain and less showy and more like, all right, 
I have vomit all over my hair from this kid and we got to figure this out. It's more the, the kind of plain ugly stuff. Yeah. The disruptions. The disruptions, but also, honestly, you have this great line from the Velveteen Rabbit. <laughs> oh, yeah. You have a great line. Real isn't how you're made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you. And making a scene really is all about the things that happened that helped make Constance Constance. Yes. And it, uh, the Velveteen Rabbit or the skin horse in the Velveteen Rabbit also says, by the time you are real... You know, all your hair has been loved off. Your eyes drop out. You're very shabby. You're like not, you like don't look good, you know? But that doesn't matter anymore because for the people who really understand love, they understand that that kind of stuff doesn't matter anymore. You know, anyone who doesn't, who thinks that that matters, they just don't understand real love. And that's not to say they're horrible people. They just don't understand it yet. And the, the ironic thing about that is my pet bunny rabbit actually only has one eye, literally has one <laughs> yes. eye. Because she had to, re- I had to remove one surgically because she had like a cataract growth mm-hmm. kind of thing in it. Yeah, it's the thing that happens with time and with disruption. And there are no real shortcuts to it. It's the thing that happens to you after you have been loved and disrupted for a very long time. Mm-hmm. The monastery though, I know I mentioned this really briefly. When yeah. exactly did you bug out and go to Gaoshan? You were on a mountain outside of Gaoshan? <laughs> yes, I was living on a secluded mountaintop in a Buddhist monastery in Gaoshan for a summer, living the life of a Buddhist monastic. And that was the summer after my sophomore year of college. So ultimately, that becomes a little bit of your acting inspiration, wouldn't it? I mean, how do you, you don't leave something like that behind when you come back to the States. I mean, that sort of weaves itself in there somehow, right? Well, you know, I opened that essay with talking about what an angsty teenager I was and Mm -hmm. how I wanted to separate myself from the crowd by being like this deep, dark person who smoked French cigarettes and like quoted the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. I thought I was like so deep. And, you know, being a provocateur in a small suburban town feels exciting. But then once you're in, you know, a performing arts college, it's less special. You need something more to separate yourself. That's why I went to the Buddhist monastery because I was like, it's going to be like I'm Thoreau going off to the woods to live deliberately. And it just wasn't. I don't talk as much about the monastery itself in there. But we have a tendency to romanticize things we don't know. And I think Westerners have a tendency to romanticize Eastern religions in a way that ranks them higher than the corruption of Western religions. I do think that corruption of religion needs to be pointed out. But I think by romanticizing things you don't know as much about, I think that does you a disservice. I mean, it all harkens back to Betty and Sid and the cheese ball. Right. Just like the things you grew up next to, Betty and Sid are my next door neighbors who I talk about in the book, in an essay. I mean, they're passed away now, but they probably would have been very, very conservative Republicans, you know, mm-hmm. but they were my surrogate grandparents. So you can look at all the bad parts of something, or you can look at the good parts too. You can look at all the corruption of certain religions, but you could also look at there are times where I think religion has probably helped a lot of people in a really small way that's unsexy and unnewsworthy. But let's not forget those small bits too. And I think seeing the nuts and bolts of Buddhism in real life in an actual monastery made me, in fact, appreciate my Presbyterian upbringing more. So you're finding the love in all the different corners, it sounds like. Trying to, yeah. (laughs) Hey, do you still like being alone in cars? 
You have a great piece about the cars that you've uh, had and you just like to sit quietly as the yeah, engines settle down. I wish, man. I mean, I say at the end of the essay, like, I do miss that. I miss being so dead tired at the end of the night that you just sit in your car and listen to it settle. and You're not doing anything because this is before we had smartphones. Those quiet moments of solitude seem very lost when you have the entire world at your fingertips. So it's like I don't have those moments anymore mm -hmm. because I inevitably start itching for stimulation. So I go look on my phone. Getting rid of social media like I did for three years was was helpful, mm -hmm. but it's hard to escape it. Like I said, you know, when I lived in New York, TV, uh, cabs, you paid in cash. They didn't have TV screens. And now I always turn off the TV screen in a taxi cab, but and I try to look out the window. But I, I find myself looking at my phone before I even realize I've done it. And I'm always disappointed in myself when I do that. It's a constant struggle, but at least I can remember what it was like when I didn't have that and listening to a car settle. It's a very specific noise listening to the car settle. Oh, it is. It is. Little clicks. Before I let you go, do you have a favorite moment from the book that you want to leave listeners with? Well, there's one part in my essay about my sister, my little sister. It's called Snap yeah. and Whistle. And I didn't know how to end that essay. It doesn't have an end because I'm still her sister and we're, our relationship is still evolving. I mean, it's funny. Even after that, it evolved even more because, you know, now she's about to have a kid. I have a kid. So mm -hmm. now we're talking about different things. And it's like, that's the beauty of it is that these things are ever evolving. They're not static where one person's the bad person, one person's the good person. They just keep growing. And I think there is a memory I have of looking at the snow with my little sister in the middle of the night, watching it fall through the floodlight that kept turning off because of the motion sensor. And then one of us running out to trigger the motion sensor so we could sit back down and watch it again and just enjoy the snow and the quiet, which is a similar sound to listening to a car settle. And I hope that my book reminds people of those kind of moments of life where we could just watch the snow falling from the darkness through the light without a kind of judgment. That's my favorite image from the book, probably, is that, that time I spent with my little sister. And all the times I spend with my little sister continue to be, like, kind of my favorite. That seems like a really great place to wrap this episode. Constance Wu, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. Making a Scene is out now. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another TBR Top Off, where we recommend books for you to pick up when you come in for your copy of Making a Scene by Constance Wu. I'm Becky. And I'm Mark. And we are coming to you from my new home store in Florence, Kentucky. And if it's all right with you, I'm going to get started. By all means, go Thank for it. Thank you. First of all, I just want to say I'm so excited for this book uh, by Constance Wu. I love her. I love Crazy Rich Asians. I just, I, I'm very excited to read this story. The book that I thought to go along with this is actually another memoir that I am wrapping up right now. And it is Hello, Molly by Molly Shannon. Yay! Um, it is such, oh, this is such a fun book. I do highly recommend the audio version just because it's Molly sharing all of these stories herself. It is both heartbreaking and hilarious. What I think drew me to it initially is um, that Molly is from Shaker Heights, which is a suburb of Cleveland. And I am also from a suburb of Cleveland. So it was nice just to kind of hear little home stories a little bit. Yeah. Um, like, I know where that is. So the story starts out actually very, very sadly. Um, Molly, when she was four years old, was um, with her entire family, her mother, her father, her older sister, younger baby sister, and, um, and then an older cousin. 
All of them were driving home late after um, a big family celebration. We're not sure what exactly happened. Either her father fell asleep at the wheel or he just wasn't paying attention. It was late at night. They were, they were so close to being home. But the, he lost control of the car and it hit a light pole. Um, not the light poles of today where they would collapse and not, as, not very much damage would happen. These are the old light poles back in the 70s. As a result of the crash, her mother, her younger sister, and her cousin were killed. Um, her father suffered extreme damage to his legs and was in a leg brace basically the rest of his life. For Molly and her older sister, who were four and five at the time, it just it shaped the rest of their lives. What I will say about this book is that it's incredible the positivity that you get from Molly. Um, and I think a lot of that comes from her extended family with her mother being gone. She, she just had to step up. Um, she and her sister both. And, um, and she is, is pretty frank about um, the codependent and, you know, strange relationship that, that they have with her father. Her father is both incredible and also you are, you have questions. He loved ferociously and um, and supported her wholeheartedly. But he was also a hard drinker. His mood swings, you never really knew what was going to happen. Um, but he was also a trickster. And so Molly grew up learning how to shoplift and talk her way onto airline flights just and, and not pay for the tickets. It's crazy. The stories that she shares are just insane. And you're kind of like, this. how did this happen? Um, obviously, a different time. but um, And she's very clear on that. But I think what's awesome, though, too, is that you just see she was very gutsy. She went for anything that she wanted because she knew no one else was going to do that for her. So, um, so yeah, so she, she got herself into New York University and, you know, studied acting. She then, you know, went for it and went out to L.A. and just put herself out there and constantly was hustling just to get just to get a meeting with the next person on, you know, make the connections that she needed to, to just get her foot in the door. It's such a great collection of stories to the people that she interacted with, the, you know, the actors, the notable names that you will know um, are, are crazy. Um, there is one story involving Gary Coleman that is very uncomfortable. I will just tell you right that. Yeah. She also just talks about the standards um, back then uh, for women. And how a lot of what happened to her, if it happened today, would be seen in a very different light. When you have a chance, please, please pick up Hello, Molly by Molly Shannon. Oh, Mark, what do you have for us? That's fantastic. <laughs> well, and, and pretty good uh, timing, too. The book that I chose also talks a little bit about standards in the mm. entertainment industry, especially for women. Mm. Um, it's probably a great tie-in for Constance Wu and Molly Shannon. And it is a newer book called All the Women in My Brain by the glorious Betty Gilpin. Oh! Uh, I love her so yes. much. Um, you may know Betty Gilpin from the Netflix series Glow. Yes. What you should know her from is that sure, but also every interview that she's ever done <laughs> on any talk show or runway, please go on a YouTube deep dive. Uh, she is astounding. And this book, of course. You should know her from that, too. <laughs> Um, so this is an essay collection that talks about fame and art, depression, sexism, sex and sexuality, 
fleeting and lasting friendships, love, acting, family. And it's all written with this so, so amazing gift for bonkers yet perfect metaphor. It's metaphor, like 20 of them per paragraph. (laughs) And it seems like it could be overwhelming, but dear God, it's perfect. She says so many things that I think people in the entertainment industry are probably thinking, not scathing necessarily, but definitely warmed up in the microwave. I just love her kind of derpiness that she completely embraces the way that she understands the standards that the industry has for females in particular and combating that with trying to hone your craft and be a real artist. Uh, it's, it's astounding. I love it so, so much. Um, I also really love her approach to mental illness. It is frank and messy and so honest at a time that I think we all could stand to read up on. Um, This is a fantastic book. It made me laugh so hard. It made me think a lot. And I love it so, so much. Please pick up All the Women in My Brain by the wonderful Betty Gibson. Oh, I am excited to read that Uh, one. So good. I have to say. Well, so that is all that we have for you today. Uh, Thank you for tuning in and subscribing. Hopefully you're already subscribing, but if not. that button. Exactly. (laughs) Please do. And please rate also um, the episodes so that. We know how we're doing. Yeah. Um, you can always follow Barnes & Noble at Barnes & Noble mm-hmm. on social media. Um, I'm Becky. And I'm Mark. You can follow me at my new home store at BN West. I'm sorry. No, it's BN Florence now. Yeah. My home <laughs> store is BN Westchester, formerly Becky's oh, home store. Yeah. <sighs> Sad and but true. It is. But wonderful. Yes, yes. it's good. It's yes. good. We're it's just... We're spreading the love of us <laughs> yes. throughout the community. As so as you're can. welcome, everybody. <laughs> thank you so oh, much, everybody. Happy reading. Bye. Bye. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.